Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They are all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Salam, peace, greetings. I hope everyone is doing well. I had some positive feedback after the first uh, episode dealing with Islam in the workplace. And when I reviewed my notes, I realized that I left off a couple of things uh, that I had wanted to discuss, but I didn't get a chance to. And because the podcast format is quite easy, uh, I thought that I would follow it up with a second episode and cover some of the aspects that I forgot to mention. And I want to add a couple of things that are a little deeper. So this is a second you know, installment of the Islam and thoughts on Islam in the workplace. Now, in the first episode, for those that didn't get a chance to listen to it, I'm not necessarily going to, I don't want to recap everything, but it was sort of a more uh, mechanical, personal approach to how you can think about aspects relating to wudu, prayer in the workplace. So I wanted to go a little bit deeper in this episode, just a little bit deeper, not not so much deep uh, where we get lost in in theoretical possibilities but i want to keep this as useful uh, for the, you know the vast majority of people as as possible and of course there're going to be scenarios that come up you know that are one offs that might not necessarily fit in these comments but i'm just trying to make a uh, intervention that i think we can all benefit from so to begin with the first thing i want to mention is what i forgot to mention in the first episode was issues and thoughts related to fasting so let me do that now of course, a big aspect of the work place and one's faith and practice is the month of Ramadan. I mean, when we were in school, I guess you could sort of get out of, depending on when Ramadan fell, you can get out of having to worry about school and, and fasting. But when you work, for the vast majority of us, uh, it's going to be a consideration. You know, how do you function? Uh, how do you deal with fasting uh, during the month of Ramadan? So some Initial thoughts to that. Number one is I would try to adjust the work hours. Now, I know that might sound off the bat. People are like, oh, that's so unrealistic. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. But just just bear with me for a second. Now, there are two ways that I think you, I, I think about adjusting the work hours in Ramadan. Again, and these are just generic um, you know, thoughts, so you don't have to take it so strictly or verbatim. One is to begin the day early. So if you wake up, uh, for suhoor, uh, and then you pray fajr, and you're the type of person that it's just absolutely impossible to fall asleep after that, you've essentially started your day at that very, very early time. And it would be possible for some people, for some jobs, to actually start the day that early. So could you negotiate with your supervisor, with your boss, with your colleagues, with your team members, that you would go to work two hours early, 
and be able to leave two hours early uh, or, or an hour early, but to shift the day towards the earlier side. And you'd be surprised. Uh, those hours are very productive. Now, it depends on the nature of work and if it's collaborative and, you know, deadlines. And I, I realize that. But again, it's just something to think about. And we shouldn't be so shy to ask because this might be in the employer's benefit, that you are more fresh, uh, you know, there's less distraction, you're getting more work done. I mean, me personally, the days that I wake up earlier, earlier meaning that, you know, I'm, I'm the only one that's up in the house and I'm not distracted by emails, phone calls, because I can't, you know, it's such an early time, no, no one is going to be responding. Those hours are actually the most productive of the entire day. Uh, and I wish, you know, for the life of me, I don't know why I can't, but I wish I could just do that every day. But those are the most productive hours. That's one way of looking about shifting the work hours. Another way is can you have some flexibility going the other direction? Can you come into late, uh, can you come into work rather, sorry, can you come into work an hour later? Uh, I, I think coming into work two hours later is a little bit too much to, to ask for, depending on where you are in the totem pole. But why not say, can I start an hour later? And I'll stay an hour later. And then that way you, you might give yourself enough time to be able to rest after suhoor, uh, after the Fajr prayer. And uh, there's a whole discussion to be had about you know how to have suhoor and 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 how to you know maximize the caloric intake and and also be able to jump back to sleep i don't want to discuss that right now because it's, it's just going to take us off topic so the first consideration or the first thought i want to offer is thinking about adjusting the work day either earlier or later and don't be again don't be shy to ask as long as you can pitch this as a way of being more productive another tool tactic uh, practice that I have found is to work through lunch. So it's funny when you when you fast, you realize how much time we waste on lunch throughout the non-fasting part of the year, which is essentially eleven months of the year. And if you work through lunch again, you that's going to be time where you're not distracted. It, I think it's acceptable uh, for those weeks, which are essentially just five days times four because you're not working most people are not working on the weekend that you just skip lunch uh with your colleagues because i mean that doesn't really make sense that you go out and you're you're not eating and they're eating i mean what, what are you accomplishing by then and eventually it's going to seem odd so i think that that would be acceptable to skip out lunch if you work through lunch well you know that's an hour hour and a half that you just gained and you don't have the slump uh, that you usually get after lunch where you sort of slow down and you know some people almost like crash and, uh, to the point where like they might even fall asleep at their desk or they might need to nap or whatever. I mean, that happens to some people. So if you work through lunch, you've, you've essentially gained an hour. And again, that would be an argument that you could leave on the earlier side. I'm not saying it's going to be like minute for minute. Well, I work through lunch so I can leave 90 minutes or 60 minutes early. I understand it's not going to necessarily be like that, but you're definitely not going to have to stay late. Uh, because you've put in that time and inshallah you've, you've been able to get ahead. So working through lunch, I found to be almost like a miraculous uh, tool and you, you feel like you get more out of the day. Number three is I definitely take the opinion that there's nothing wrong with brushing your teeth while you're fasting. Of course, you know, granted that you don't swallow uh, because that would invalidate the fast, obviously. But there are some opinions that uh, you don't, you know, use the miswak or brush your teeth after dhuhr prayer because of the hadith that the 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 smell of the fasting person person's mouth is more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa taala than the the smell of misk. And then the fuqahat they debated, you know, what this exactly means. 
But I definitely take the opinion that it's okay because when you're around people that are not fasting, that are not Muslim in a culture that's predominantly not observing that, it's going to be very odd and you know it can be very unpleasant as we know uh, for those of us that fast. So I definitely brush my teeth. As a matter of fact, uh, whenever I've had like an office desk type of situation, I would actually keep the toothbrush and, and toothpaste in the office for that purpose because I want to be cognizant that I don't want to offend other people. And I don't want to be always like dodging having to speaking to people. I know it sounds silly, but it actually, I think it's important. So I'm just offering it, you know, putting it out there. And the last thing I wanted to say about fasting is when, as it relates to traveling. Uh, in this case, I'm talking about traveling for work. So a lot of us travel for work. And I almost universally take the dispensation of breaking the fast when I travel. And the reason is... Here I'm talking about traveling for work. If it's traveling not for work and you're sort of on your own time, you can push yourself and you can make it through the fast. And and we don't like to make up the fast days. I understand it's it's better just to fast. Uh, and if you're one of those people that you can do it, that's great. But I'm talking about my personal experience. I break my fast if I'm traveling for work because when I travel for work, I'm not at home. I don't have the things around me that I'm used to having on my daily Ramadan schedule that help me with the fast. So if I have certain foods that I have for suhoor, if I have certain foods that I have, you know, when I break my fast, I remember when Ramadan was in the peak of the summer, you know, the absolute longest days, I actually, I think I had to travel two of those Ramadans for a few days. And the iftar and the suhoor were so late and so early that there was almost nothing open in the area where I was to eat. Or to prepare. So that would have meant I had to carve out two, three hours of the day to go shopping and get the food. I mean, it, be, it became like an ordeal. So I said, well, you know, I have this dispensation, so I'll just take it. Uh, and that's why we have the dispensation, because you're not around your, your surrounding. And I don't feel bad about it, is the thing. is I take the dispensation, and I know, okay, uh, I feel bad. It feels weird, you know, breaking your fast, you know, in the middle of the month or wherever, whenever you're traveling. But I also know that there's a reason why we have this uh, allowance. And when I travel and for work, you usually have to accomplish a certain amount of things and you have to be aware and awake and, and you know, you have to execute on the meeting or the project or whatever it is that you're doing. And if you're fasting and you don't have the things around you that you're used to having or that, you know, even if they're very simple, but because of the timings or you're traveling, so you can't take that stuff with you, it makes sense that you would break your fast don't feel bad about it, and then make it up later. And it depends on what your travel schedule is. Somebody might be listening to this and they're like, well, I travel almost every week, so that's just not going to work for me. Okay, uh, that, that's fine. Uh, you might not travel at all, and this might not be a consideration. Or you might travel and you're like, well, that, I don't, I'm not, it's, fasting is not as difficult for me, it's very easy. Uh, I just need like a bottle of water or you know, a couple of dates and I'm good to go. Fine, that's great. But for me, uh, I found that Sometimes it does create a problem, uh, especially when I arrive somewhere and I got to be up super early or if I'm over time zones and, you know, there's a jet lag function uh, and those type of considerations take place, you know, I'll, I'll break my fast while I travel and I'll just make them up later in, in the year or the month after or whenever is convenient. So those are some thoughts about fasting in the workplace that I had forgotten to, to discuss in the previous episode. Two broader categories that I wanted to discuss today as well. 
uh, one is traveling. It's a sort of a nice segue from our just uh, previous comments about fasting and traveling. But traveling in general. Now, traveling is a part of many people's jobs. Some people travel much more than others. Uh, some people travel sometimes intensely and then sometimes not. But it's, you know, it's part of the modern condition and it's become more easy. And whether you're traveling by car, by train, uh, by plane, it's a, the nature of the modern workforce is that there's a lot of travel involved oftentimes. Is number one is to try my best to keep my, my, my routines. So all of the routines that you can think of, whether they be prayer routines, if you have a certain uh, routine of reading uh, you know, a page or half a page of Quran a day or more than that, or you, if you have certain awrad or, or dhikr that you say morning and evening, whatever the case may be, is to not lose those when you travel. When you travel, some of times what happens is you sort of get disoriented because it's a different situation, a different method of transportation, different location, sometimes different even time zone, in some cases even different language, and that can throw you off. And I found that keeping the routine is even more important then than it is during when I'm not traveling. So that's one takeaway or lesson that I learned, is if I keep those routines, I actually find that I'm more grounded, and the task of the travel becomes easier. So when I arrive somewhere inevitably the first thing that I think about is uh, what prayers do I have to make uh, that I missed while I was traveling. And this brings up another minor point that I want to mention. It's also related to traveling. But there is a modern discussion, and here it relates specifically to traveling on an airplane. Do you pray while you're in the airplane or not? In other words, if you're flying and it's a long distance, you know, multiple hour flight and a, a prayer time will come and go while you are in flight, do you pray while you're in the plane or not? And to be honest, there's a difference of opinion. The later Shafi's argued that the difficulty with praying in the air is that you're suspended. In other words, one of the conditions of praying that the later Shafi's found is that you are connected somehow to the earth. So you're either standing in a room or your, uh, the vehicle that you are traveling in, whether it be a riding animal in the case of when the medieval scholars were, were arguing, or you're on a boat, you know, you're somehow connected, quote-unquote, connected to the earth. But the plane is, is suspended. So the later Shafi's, they said, therefore the airplane would mean a suspension of the ob obligation to pray at that point. So let's say you're flying uh, overseas, so there's a multiple hour flight and Dhuhr and Asr have come and gone. What do you do? If you follow this opinion, the minute you land and you're able to, you wash and you pray Dhuhr and Asr that you missed and there's no sin involved. Now, because I'm most of the time in the United States and we are speaking here, I'm recording this in the year 2018, towards the end of 2018. There are a lot of considerations that I also find also help me want to follow this opinion. In other words, praying in public spaces, in airplanes, uh, in airports, is now somewhat very different than when I was growing up uh, in the you know 80s and 90s and th that time period. It was it was much easier. There wasn't as much you know concern. I'm not saying that I follow this opinion because I'm scared or frightful to pray in public. It just happens that it also makes me following this decision easier. So when I fly, I do not pray in the plane. I make up the prayers that I missed. Why does this relate to the discussion? Uh, 
is that when I land somewhere, because I'm so obsessed with following my routines as a way of grounding me, the first thing I'm thinking of is what do I have to make up? Okay, so then I have to determine where the Qibla is. So that means I have to either get a map out or I have to make sure my compass is with me or I trust the compass on the app, on the phone. But there has, so you start, your mind starts going towards the familiar. Okay, I got to determine the Qibla in my room. I got to make sure I got to make wudu. I got to make sure that I knock out the prayers before I got to go to the next meeting or the next function, etc. So the routine sort of helps ground you and you don't get lost. This is for me personally. Maybe for some people, the traveling is not that traumatic. But I think sometimes traveling can be a little bit of trauma. Actually, there's a hadith that the Prophet, peace be upon him, said that traveling is a form of torture. So, you know, there is some difficulty in traveling, no matter how luxurious the traveling may be. The next takeaway or lesson or thought related to traveling is I like to read more when I travel than when I don't travel. In other words, I try to occupy, there's a lot more free time I find because I'm, I don't have the family component. If I'm traveling for work, I'm by myself. So even though I'm busy during the, the work day, quote unquote, there's a lot more, quote unquote, dead time because I don't have the family consideration because I'm by myself. So to not waste that time and to feel that I'm adding to myself personally and I'm growing and I'm benefiting, I, I like to read. Uh, some people might want to, you know, maybe it's a novel. Uh, maybe it's uh, you want to catch up on uh, a documentary or, you know, you just want to relax. But I, I try to use that free time structure in a structured way. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's, just, it's about being structured so that you feel that you got something out of it. I don't want to come out thinking that I wasted that time because that's a gift in a way that you've had that, you know, little burst of free time. So I want to use it to the for some kind of benefit that I'm not able to have. Maybe it's exercising more. Uh, some people like to swim or to jog. Maybe they'll, they'll rent a bike in the city that they're in. They'll go bike riding. Uh, one time I was in London and I had an extra, a whole extra day actually, and I found tickets to a play and I went to go see a play. And I mean, being in the theater was, you know, a wonderful experience. I hadn't done it in years. So I feel like even now, as I'm recording this, I remember that fondly. That was a nice, positive thing. So I like to use the free time. My default is to read. I'll bring something extra to read. But if it's, you know, if there's sites that I want to see or uh, if I'm in a new place and I want to explore, I try to structure the free time so that it's some, it, it ends up being a net positive, not a net negative. The third thought comment about traveling is to be professional at all times. So oftentimes when you travel, you're traveling with colleagues or you're meeting with colleagues and I just want to always remember that I'm on the clock. I'm on the job. I, I'm, I'm here to be professional, to, you know, to function in a professional way, to, to conduct myself in a professional way, just like I would in my home, quote unquote, home office back home with my regular team and my regular job. And this is important for like a host of reasons. Number one, it, it, that's how you want to be to advance professionally. You want to be, you know, known as a as an A player uh, you know, a peak performer. And the way to do that is to always be professional and think of the task at hand and try to execute and excel to the best of your ability. It's also important, again, because there is free time and because you are not necessarily in your home environment and because you don't necessarily have the same type of considerations that you have back home that you have now, it doesn't mean that, you know, just do whatever you want. Uh, and sometimes some people that leads to 
you know, down a path that sometimes is hard to come back from. And I don't want to necessarily get in any details or any stories, but just I want to leave it, you know, like that. Everyone sort of knows their situation. So I like to remind myself to be professional at all times, which is why I just mentioned about using and structuring the free time that may emerge uh, during the traveling uh, time or the traveling period. The last chunk or subject matter is how we deal with people that we don't necessarily agree with 100% of the time. And here I am actually not talking about colleagues, but I'm thinking professionally. So an example or generic example that I think might help underscore what I'm trying to say is if a patient comes to a physician and let's say the patient is engaging in some kind of behavior that me as a Muslim, if I'm a Muslim physician, my moral system doesn't acknowledge or doesn't agree with. What do I do in that in that you know situation? And the reason I pick the doctor is I think well, all, of, all of us have been to a doctor, so we sort of can understand the dynamics. When you become a physician, you know, you take this ho- this oath, the Hippocratic oath, to serve you know and help humanity. That's your job, and as we know from previous discussions, if you've been following, that's one of the meta principles of the Sharia. The preservation of life. So the Sharia doesn't say, oh, you preserve life only the people that are like you or look like you or smell like you or think like you. No, you preserve life no matter what. Even if it's somebody that's not just you disagree with, but somebody that's your enemy. I mean, if you're a physician and you find somebody in need and you know that this is somebody that hates you, that detests you, that's been cursing you, that's been trying to harm you, you know, you still have a moral obligation as your oath as a physician and therefore, you know, as according to our moral code as Muslims, we can even say that that way, you have an obligation to help that person out. That helping doesn't mean that you agree with every facet of that person's life. And that's really important because a lot of times I get questions. This actually, this question that I'm about to, to say now, this is something that's happened multiple times for, for a strange reason. I don't know why, but somebody will come and tell me, I work in a department store and I sell... Um, cosmetics, women's cosmetics, or I work in a department store and I sell lingerie. It's always women's stuff. I don't know why. Or I work in a, uh, somebody said to me once, I work in a department store and I sell women's swimsuits. I don't know why anyone doesn't have this problem with like men's underwear and men's swimsuits, but whatever, that's what happened to me. So they're saying, was there something wrong with that? And I sort of, I was trying to understand where this question is coming from. Why would that be wrong? And I realized they're trying, they're assuming that the person that's purchasing those items, they're going to do something haram with that. So it's somehow it's haram for women to wear uh, cosmetics or somehow they're thinking that it's haram for women to wear lingerie or somehow they're thinking it's haram for women to wear bathing suits or something like that. That's where I realized where the questioners, questioners, plural, were coming from. I said, no, 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 you're, you're not responsible for how somebody's going to use that. Uh, there could be a thousand halal uses uh, for that. Uh, there might be a thousand haram uses. Your job is just to sell the item and you know to make an honest living. Is it haram to create that product? No, it's not a haram product. Uh, so therefore, it's not haram to sell it. And then I realized that one of the problems that we have, if you've been following the principles series, one of the problems that we have is we, we're not able often to bifurcate rulings for different actions. We, we somehow lump our actions as one 
grand action. And we say, oh, this, therefore, all of it is haram. But that's not the way that the Islamic legal system works. Actually, there are very few things that are haram. Uh, most things are permissible, uh, permitted, okay, disliked. All of that uh, is from the realm of the permissible. It's only one aspect of the Sharia that's haram, and those are aspects that are clearly prohibited, haram. Other than that, everything falls under different categories. So sometimes we just get sloppy and we lump everything together and we say, oh, therefore it's haram. No, it's, we have to be discerning. So when you are a service provider or you work, um, you're you know making a widget, some kind of product you're selling or whatever, you know, as long as there's even one theoretically permissible use of that product. I mean, I'm assuming you wouldn't be in the business anyway in the first place if you thought that was haram. You're not necessarily responsible uh, for how people are going to use it uh, or abuse it in that case. Except in the case where you know for certain that somebody's trying to procure something to, to inflict harm on somebody else. I mean, that's you know universally all moral legal systems. We would all say that, no, we have an obligation to you know try to step in. So if like a, using the doctor example, because uh, I know quite a bit of physicians... If a, if, a phys, if a patient was coming uh, and trying to force the doctor to prescribe them narcotics, even though the patient is clearly not in need of them because somehow the patient got hooked on them. You know, the, the doctor has a moral obligation in the name of their profession, right? Because again, the oath is to help humanity, help heal people. In the name of the profession, you have a moral obligation not to, in that case, provide that person. But short of that, obvious at least i think it's obvious uh, moral red flag just because somebody comes and has a lifestyle that we don't agree with uh has a moral system that we don't necessarily ag agree with especially and here i'm speaking to muslims as a minority community in the broader quote-unquote western world no we there's nothing wrong with servicing these people and providing for these people and selling to these people and there's no moral ambiguity in that because there's a bifurcation to be a little bit technical of how we would judge that they're judged on what they do but you're also judged on what you do you're not judged on what they are going to do no soul bears the burdens or uh, or the sins of another this is one of the quranic principles that we have and i think that that this last section that i wanted to discuss i'm sure it's going to bring up a lot of other Concerns. I mean, even now as I'm recording, I'm thinking that there are other scenarios that I really would like to get into, but I don't want to clog up this episode with those. Uh, maybe we can get into a part three where it's even deeper and I can actually maybe sort of share. I have a lot of people come to me with these type of questions. Uh, so maybe I can I can highlight without any names actual things that have happened where I think it's you would be surprised in, in, in you know how the Sharia or how the, the, the Dean would, would solve these problems. But it's really important for us to remember that. We, we, we are meant to be productive, active members of our society. And as I've said over and over again, a huge part of our reason of existence is to work, is to work collaboratively, is to work with people, is to develop the world, to leave the world better than we received it. All those types of things under the you know rubric of development, al-aymara, as the Qur'an calls it. So therefore we are for sure going to deal with people that we disagree with, that dislike us. We might even dislike them. We might have fundamental moral disagreements with them. But, لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ وَلِيَ دِينُ To you is your faith, to me is my faith. To you is your belief, 
To me is my belief. La ikraha fi There's no compulsion in religion. You know, my job as a service provider is not to be Mr. or Mrs. Dawah. My job as a service provider is to provide the service and to make a halal income to support myself and my family. Kullukum ra'in wa kullukum mas'ulun an ra'yati. All of you are shepherds and all of you are responsible for your flock. Ibda bi nafsika thumma bi man Begin with yourself and then those next to you. The advice of the Prophet peace be upon him. So, I'm not responsible for the the condition of the whole world. I'm just responsible for the people that are immediately in my sphere of, of influence. You know, my children and maybe my community students, the people the people that I work with. That's about it. So, you have to be able to bifurcate that. Sometimes, one time I was speaking with a, with a colleague from uh, a former graduate of Princeton, not a Muslim, but he said, you know, I, I noticed that Muslims, they have this problem that they have this ummah complex. I said, what do you mean? I, it was very interesting that he used that phrase. He said, all Muslims that I've run into, and he's an academic, so you know, he's, he's dealing with a lot of people that are on the intellectual spectrum. Um, he said, all the Muslims that I deal with, they, they kind of feel that they're always, all the time responsible for every Muslim everywhere. So I realized, yes, because we have this concern, you know, the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, whoever is not concerned with the affair of the believers is not from amongst them. So we do have this ummah complex in the sense that we care, we should care about what's happening around the world to our brothers and sisters. But again, we have to bifurcate and discern that that does not necessarily mean that I might be able to affect and actively help all of those people equally. The least I can do is I can pray for them. Just like I hope people pray for me. But I might not be able to help every single category of people. What I can actually uh, bring resources to are those that are in my immediate sphere. So he was right. He was wrong and right at the same time. I mean, having concern of the greater community is important. But he was right to to highlight that no, we're not always responsible for all aspects of the deen at all time. You know, let's begin with yourself and make sure you're straight and then those that are, are next to you. And that's why I think this, this section of, of this episode is important for us to realize is that you're going to deal with people that you don't like, that you disagree with, but that should not preclude you from providing from them the best care, the best service. Uh, it should not preclude you from selling to them. And I know that this is going to bring up a lot of discussion about, you know, free speech and do I have to be compelled uh, to, to sell this or provide this service to that type of person. I want to leave it just sort of broad so we can ruminate over that. And then hopefully in the coming months, maybe we can get into some more specifics. Um, I know people listening, particularly in the United States, this is an issue. Uh, that has even gotten to the level of the Supreme Court, where there are Supreme Court arguments for and against this type of um, activity from a business provider. But uh, I think we also have an interesting take on it, and I wanted to provide that. Again, hopefully this is helpful. As usual, feedback is uh, asked for. Please give me the feedback, whether it's negative or positive. And uh, be well, and we'll speak soon. Take care.